0: We are in Romans chapter 1, so if you'd open your scriptures up to that first chapter of this great letter, we're going to be working through verses 21 through 25 today. Sometimes there's a very fine line between bravery and foolishness. When a vessel at sea encounters serious problems and is in danger of sinking, the captain of that vessel is often compelled by an unwritten code to, quote-unquote, go down with the ship. This idea has been part of the culture of sailing for over 150 years. And it grew out of the idea that a captain is the last person responsible for not only his ship, but also for the lives of everyone on board of that ship. Even if the opportunity to secure his own escape presents itself, it is noble and brave for a ship captain to reject that opportunity if there are still passengers whose escape has not yet been secured. That means that a ship captain accepts the difficult reality that if not all are able to be evacuated in time before the ship sinks, he will, by his own conviction and choice, be among those who sink along with the ship. There's a certain bravery and selflessness in this way of thinking. But we see in the stubborn heart of man a different kind of determination, of stubbornness, when it comes to their desire to be in charge of their own destiny. Romans 1, 18-20, as we studied last week, declared that man can see there is a God. The, The book of natural revelation, the creation that God has made, points to His handiwork, and declares to all of the creation that there is a God, that He is a God of order, and that He is to be revered and honored. And yet man has sinned against that God. To be in control and to do things in our own way, we must attempt to cut ourselves off from the authority and the power of this God who brought us into being. The wrath of God is therefore revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness in mankind. And if we continue in our rebellious nature and our rejection of the Lord, the only outcome is judgment and destruction for us. So we spoke about the difficult reality that the wrath of God is real and that it is on the wicked who have not Christ. And yet because the mutiny of sinful independence is so strong in our hearts, though we see that the outcome of ignoring God, our Creator, and tossing His law to the side, the outcome of that is separation from God and ultimately it is judgment, though we see that the ship of independence is undeniably sinking, the heart of man defiantly continues to stand in opposition to his righteous power. Is this brave? Absolutely not. In fact, it is tragically stupid for man to take this selfish posture before a God to whom he owes his every life, to whom he owes his every breath, his very being, his everything. Here in chapter 1 of Romans, the foolishness of man's rebellion is exposed. It is articulated by the Apostle Paul. And as we progress through the first three major themes of this book, the first of three, that being the guilt of man, Paul is going to describe in some detail how his, this refusal in man to accept the sovereign authority and honor of God plays out in the lives of sinners. While God will one day bring final judgment upon the creation that is stained by sin. Paul also helps us to see how God will respond to sin in the here and now, before His wrath is fully realized in the day of judgment. So in order to help us establish the context this morning, I'm going to read through what we studied last week over again. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. The passage that we'll be focused on today will be verses 21 through 25, but let's begin in verse 18. For the wrath of God to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Would you bow with me for a moment as we bless the name of God in prayer, thanking Him for what He gives to us in His Word, and ask for His guidance as we discern it. Lord, everything that exists, exists because you have declared it to exist. And so, God, we are humbled to know of your decree. And we are thankful, Lord, that you have spoken this world and the universe that rests within. You've created it, not only for our good, but for your glory. And so let us magnify your great name, Lord. Let us recognize the evidence of your mighty hand. Do a work in our hearts so that we would not see the evidence of your existence and of your power and turn a blind eye to it, Lord God. But may you be reverenced in us. May your church declare how great thou art. Let us, Lord, through our songs, through our prayers, through our gathering on the Lord's Day, but through our very existence throughout every moment of life, let us live in faith to you and so doing declare your great and perfect character. We love you and we thank you for the help that you give us in this special revelation, this word that will last forever. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The prophet Isaiah, when he was given a vision of the throne room of God, fell down face first to the ground and he cried out. What did he cry out? He cried out a confession of his sin and the sin of his people. He did so with fear and trembling, because he expected to be destroyed. He, know, he knew he had been taught that the glory of God, if it was beheld by, by man, would be too much for a mortal to see and live. And so he expected to die. He fell down in reverence before the, the revelation of God to him. Moses stumbles upon a burning bush in the wilderness. And when he is informed that he is in the presence of Almighty God, he takes off the sandals from his feet because he is on holy and reverenced ground. He hides his face, the Scriptures tell us, afraid because he is unworthy to look upon the majesty of his Maker. When Job experiences a personal interaction with Yahweh, whom he has cried out to, whom he has questioned, God speaks in answer to his frustrations And then Job recognized definitively that every lofty thing that he had been taught about this God, about Yahweh, was not an exaggeration. God reveals himself to Job. He answers Job's questions. And Job responds like this. He despises himself. And he repents in dust and ashes for even having the gall to ask questions of God in the first place. The very perfection of God had made Job's own sin all the more obvious to him, and he sees that he is unworthy to stand before such a just and powerful being. These are the kinds of responses that you would expect from a sinner who's faced with the reality that God is indeed real, and God is indeed holy and perfect and pure. To know God should elicit in us a compulsion to honor God and to express gratitude for all that he has graciously given to us. But as far as man seeing that God is real, the reaction of these three Old Testament figures is sadly exceptional to the rule. The original sin that we inherited from Adam keeps mankind from responding to the knowledge of God as he ought to respond. Verse 21 again, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Paul has demonstrated that the entire human race has seen the evidence of God's existence through the work of His hands. They can testify that this God is unique. He is different than all that He has made. Just by looking at His creative work, they can't know everything there is to know about this God. But simply by beholding the natural world, no person can claim that they didn't know that God is real, that they didn't know He was worthy of glory. But when God reveals Himself to mankind in this natural way, Tragically, mankind's response is not awe. It is not reverence. Instead, it is skepticism and rejection. As chapter 1 continues to unfold, Paul breaks down the nature of that response and the consequence that it provokes from God. This rejection of God is what we would call a sin of omission. There are two categories of sin that we might think rightly, about our errors in. There are categories of sin called sins of omission, whereby God has said, do this, and we refrain from doing it. We do not obey the Lord God as we should in an active way. There are other sins called sins of commission, where God forbids us to act or to do certain things, and yet, in deference to what He says, we do it anyway. So this refusal to acknowledge God Or to give thanks to Him is properly understood as a sin of omission. We are not giving Him what He deserves when we fail to worship Him properly and to thank Him for what He has given to us, which is everything. The Westminster Shorter Catechism sums up the reason that man was created in the first place. It does so in a very concise and biblical way. I'm sure you're familiar with this. It asks, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why did God even make us in the first place? And it answers the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is why human beings exist. To worship the Lord that has made us. To be blessed by His greatness, His righteousness. And to say amen to who He has revealed Himself to be. Declaring with our right response of obedience that yes, God is God. And there is no one else like Him. That is what we are made to do. Is that what you are living for, Christian? Think about that this morning. Is that the thrust of your life? Do you wake up every morning ready and desiring to enjoy God and to serve Him forever? When man refuses to acknowledge God and to give God the glory that he deserves, he's neglecting the most fundamentally essential aspect of his very design. In a sense... He is failing to be a man, a human being. What would cause a person to refuse honor to a God who clearly deserves honor? Many things. Lack of faith, first and foremost. We do not want to believe that God is who He says He is. We do not want to believe that if we don't treat Him with the reverence that He deserves, that there are consequences for that. So our lack of faith, can cause us to turn away from the things that God has revealed about himself and to act as if we don't know them. Pride is another reason why we don't give God the glory and the thanksgiving that he deserves. Because we think highly of ourselves, more than we ever should, and not highly enough about God. We don't want to believe that we are less than our creator is. And so rather than give him the honor for which we were made to give, we give honor to other things or to ourselves. Envy is one of the reasons that we don't respond in a worshipful way to the revelation that there is a true and holy God. The glory and the freedom that God, um, that God deserves, we think we deserve that, that freedom. We, de- we think we deserve that glory. We're not content to be the honored thing that we are, bearing the image of God. We want to be the one object of worship that only Yahweh is. So envy can cause us to commit this sin of omission or foolishness the limitations of our ability to understand and comprehend. Rather than deal with things as they are in our foolishness, we cling to our own ideas of what they should be. We refuse to accept the truth. And in doing so, we become detached from reality, and we set ourselves up for a rude awakening. If God is unworthy to be praised, if He was... And we. I, I hate to even say that out loud. If God was unworthy to be praised, hypothetically, then rebellion against Him would not only be understandable. If God was an unholy God, then we might even see rebellion against Him as noble. If God was a sinner like us, but simply a more powerful sinner, then to reject His rule would be reasonable. It would still be dangerous, but for the sake of what is right and good, it would be a struggle worth our effort to make. But God is no such thing. There is no sin in him. He is a God of order, a God of beauty. His creative power is unmatched by anything that he has brought into existence. He is merciful and long-suffering. He is the very essence of love itself. This is not a God who fashioned man for unsufferable slavery. This is a God who built man to bear his own image. To dwell in a garden of blessing and abundance. This is a God who created man to have fellowship with himself. To not only worship God, but to enjoy him. To experience the blessing of being near to that God and to do that for eternity. So this God who has made us and who deserves our worship is not a tyrant. He's not some, not some ill-hearted man who forces us into servanthood at our expense and his benefit. God is worthy of our thanks. And this makes mankind's rejection of him all the more horrific and shameful. But they became futile in their thinking, verse 21 says. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Two of the faculties of man, or two faculties that man depends upon more than any others, are our thoughts and our emotions. And both our thoughts and our emotions are radically impacted by this rebellious, rebellious stance against God. Can you see how the way that we think and the way that we feel are of great influence to every aspect of how you live your life? Your thoughts are foundational to your judgment. What is good, what is bad, or at least how you see those things is greatly affected by the way you think and reason. What you, what you discern about good and evil Your heart, on the other hand, your emotions, what you desire, what you love, love, does this not drive you forward? Does this not determine what you apply yourself to and expend your energies on? So when the heart and the mind are negatively impacted by this rebellious stance that we take against God, it impacts our ability to see things clearly and truthfully. The moment mankind becomes rebellious to a good and holy God, our thoughts prove to be futile. And our emotions, our heart, was darkened. In other words, our thinking became untrustworthy and therefore worthless to us. Our thinking now betrays us rather than guarding us, rather than giving us a clear picture of what things are. Our hearts became subject to the deception of darkness. We began to hide the truth and operate on lies that play to our fantasies about ourselves rather than reveal to us the the beauty of truth. It is common for people to think that what is natural to man is what is most authentic. You're going to hear this in the culture that you live in today. That if I'm not doing what is natural to me, then I'm not being authentic to myself. I'm not, I'm not being honest with myself. I must, to my own self, be true. <clears throat> people extend this way of thinking into their perception of what God must be. They think, how could God be against my desires if they are what makes me most happy, if this is what I am, to be something different would be a betrayal of myself. Surely God does not want me to betray myself. And this mistaken way of looking at God creates an excuse for every kind of heinous breaking of God's law. People, in thinking this way, refuse to realize that man has failed to be what he was authentically supposed to be ever since the fall of Adam in the garden. The nature of his design has been corrupted by the first man's failure. So now we have a nature that is intrinsically rebellious, but which contradicts the very reasons that we were made. We have an inherited sin nature, but that sin nature is actually not native to our original nature, which was to worship God and to enjoy him forever. We can hardly imagine now what true man should be like because the stain of sin has so perpetually kept us from experiencing what it means to be a true human being. This corruption of mind and heart makes it impossible for us to understand our real nature apart from the illuminating help of God and His Holy Spirit. Near the end of last year, it was announced that eight Antioch police officers were being taken off of active duty as part of an FBI investigation into alleged misconduct that alleged that these officers were a part of falsification of records that enabled them to receive higher pay raises than they should have gotten, uh, that they were involved with the legal distribution of narcotics that had been seized in certain police activities in Antioch, and other illegal and immoral acts that benefited them at the expense of the people that they were supposed to serve and protect. Now, we don't know the outcome of that investigation yet, but it it unsettles our hearts to think that those whom we are trusting to look out for the rules that govern our society are themselves possibly the very people who are breaking those rules. Now, not all of the officers were involved in this. I'm not trying to cast a negative light to our, our police force. the small group of individuals that may have committed these crimes have made it infinitely more difficult for those faithful officers who are doing their job and are still trying to keep the peace in our area. The investigations are still pending But in a similar way, your intellect and your emotions are two faculties that you trust to help you navigate safely through life and reality. But by rejecting God, those two things that you're depending upon are now corrupted and are untrustworthy to you. That seriously hinders your ability to live a life of truth and dignity. Such is the state of man once he has separated himself from God. Refusing to acknowledge and confess the true God destabilizes your capacity to even comprehend truth. For in doing so, for in rejecting God, you've alienated yourself from the very source of truth. But this is exactly the predicament that we <clears throat> find ourselves in when we reject the obvious truth that God is real and that His wrath is upon the the, witch, the, wrecked, the wretched Verse 22 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. There is an unwillingness to recognize our sin and to then plead to the God of truth for forgiveness rather than admitting our fault. Mankind wants to continue to claim that they are wise and in doing so, they double down on their foolishness. In order to refuse the truth, man must lie to himself regarding his condition. It is not a sin to be simple of mind. When we're raising our children, we are at times made aware of the fact that our children just don't know a lot of things. They can be rebellious, but sometimes they're just being children. I remember distinctly when I was a, a kid that my parents noticed that I was eating up all of the most expensive snack items like the first day they got them. So they put them in a special place hoping that I wouldn't go through and just tear through them all in one day. I knew I was not allowed to go and, and get those snacks. But being a crafty, sneaky little kid, I broke the rules intentionally because I really wanted those gummy snacks. And so I searched the whole house over when my parents were at work. I found the stash, and I began to skim off the top. That's an example of a child being unrighteous. That is an example of a child rebelling against the truth of his parents and the rules that he has given. But we, not, we should not punish our children for simply lacking knowledge and comprehension. I was uh, just noting that my daughter was, this morning, trying to keep herself occupied with crayons. And so I got her some crayons, and I said, you can only draw on your your coloring book that you brought. And so I saw her eyeing the manuscript of my sermon. (laughs) Now, she doesn't know the difference between a coloring book and a sermon. So if she were to have written on my sermon, this is the kind of paper she draws on when she's at home it would be wrong for me to then give her a spanking or scold her because she drew on my sermon because she just doesn't know the difference yet. So it's not wrong to be simple. Trying to be something that you are not is not just being simple. It is a charade. It is intentional deception, first to yourself and then to those around you. It is an assault on God's truth. Who determines whether or not you're a fool? Only the one who holds the truth. A fool is not someone who disagrees with you. A fool is someone who disregards the truth of God. Satan is rightfully known as the father of lies. We see this as part of his strategic approach to Eve in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent asks Eve, Did God really say that you would die? He plants seeds of doubt in her. He tries to get her to believe a reality that's not reality. If you eat of the fruit, will you not become like God? Isn't that the motivation behind God's limiting of you? You see what Satan is doing? He is trying to get Eve to think differently about God than she should. Rather than see him as a perfect provider who has cared for her every needs, he is trying to get Eve to doubt that God is actually a good and holy God. He's trying to get her to see God as an enemy, as a rival. And so, yes, Satan is the father of lies. But he does not have a monopoly on deception. Man has proven to be quite the understudy to Satan. We are phenomenally adept at twisting the facts around so that we might believe what is obviously false when it suits us. In this foolish state of self-deception, man makes a terrible exchange. He swaps the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal created things. We see this in verse 23, don't we? Think of all Adam and Eve forfeited in breaking the law of God. All the blessings of this ideal garden that they were put in, this place that they were given dominion over, that they had authority to rule, all that God had blessed them with was theirs to hold on to. And yet, they exchanged that for the prospect of eating the one forbidden fruit that they thought would make them equal to God. The rest of mankind doesn't fall from quite the same lofty place of blessing, but there's a very similar sense in which man has at his disposal plenty of evidence of the truth. We look around us and we see the beauty of God's creative hand in all that He has made, and yet we willfully choose to toss all of that knowledge to the side in order to pursue a reality that is more to our liking. This tragic exchange, the truth that we have for a lie of what we might possibly get, is identified many places in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple examples Psalm 106, verse 20 through 22. They made a calf in Horeb, and they worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. This is a historical psalm, Psalm 106, which laments the the terrible choices that men have made in this wretched exchange, where we have taken what was good and holy about God, and we were not satisfied enough with it to rejoice in it and to give thanks to God for it, but instead we exchanged it for something we thought might be better. Jeremiah 2, verses 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods at all? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So, the first sin, a sin of omission. They have forsaken me. They have refused to give me the glory that I deserve to have, the glory for which I created them to give. And then, a sin of commission. They have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, they've replaced God with false gods that can do nothing for them. They have committed sin by worshiping what does not deserve to be worshiped. This exchange means that man essentially gives God up. They have abandoned Him. But more than that, they have embraced embraced as gods the lies of their own design. And so in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul in a different letter describing this process. He says in Ephesians 4, beginning verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of of their mind. Remember Paul has described to us in the Romans letter how in turning away from God, we corrupt our thoughts in our hearts. Ephesians 17 says that the Gentiles no long or the, the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds verse 18 they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The mind and the heart both corrupted. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you, church, have learned Christ. So there's a very important detail here that we should not miss as we think about this exchange. Man does not reject the idea of God altogether. Rather, man tends to reject God as he truly is, choosing instead to favor an idea of God that is more suitable to his own desires and opinions. And that is why Paul says in verse 23 of Romans 1, that man has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see how this sin of omission leads to the sin of commission. Commission. We refuse to do what is commanded of us of God. We refuse to honor Him and to thank Him. Yet because we were designed to be worshipers by our nature, it is our tendency then to just invent something more favorable for us to worship. Something that we think is going to allow us to have the freedoms and the independence that we would like to have that God does not necessarily give us. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. And the second, you shall make no graven images, and both of those commandments are violated when we commit sin against God and worship what we should not worship. Rather than deny the full existence of God, man commandeers the idea of God and then manipulates it to suit his purposes. And here any number of mythologies are born from the corrupt mind of man. Images resembling man are worshipped by men. Uh, There are examples of this throughout history and mythology. We see it in Zeus, in Hercules, this half-man, half-god. We see it in figures like Buddha, who are human beings who people claim have attained to a certain type of realization or knowledge that makes them transcend normal humanity. Human beings that are exalted in some way, to be more than a normal human, we also see mortal men and women treated as if they are somehow deserving of godlike worship. Our celebrities, our politicians, our sports figures. Remember that the, the Roman emperors often insisted that their subjects, the citizens of Rome, confess them as gods or demigods in order to be citizens of the state of Rome. So man worships that which looks like him. He forms gods in such a way that they are not so different than himself so that he might identify with those gods. Sometimes he builds gods in the form of created things. This might even be more sad for birds and creatures with four legs and fur. They weren't even originally given the image of God to bear in the first place. So we're speaking about worshiping something that is not even as noble as the humankind that we are that is below God. Even creeping things are sometimes exalted. Martin Lloyd-Jones marvels that so many of the so-called gods that man has invented throughout time are undeniably hideous. They are monstrosities because they come from a darkened mind. In August of 2018, a bronze statue of a false god called Baphomet, a mythical creature that had the body of a man, the head of a goat, and broad uh, wings, emblazoned with a pentagram upon his forehead was fashioned out of bronze and was attempted to be put in front of the state uh, courthouse in Little Rock, Arkansas. The reason why this statue was made was because the Ten Commandments had been uh, memorialized in a monument and placed there by the courthouse because of the effect that the Ten Commandments have undeniably had on Western culture. And those from the church or temple of Satan decided that in order for there to be separation between church and state, you either have to get rid of those Ten Commandments, or you've got to allow anybody who wants to put a religious thing up in front of the courthouse to put it up there. So they made this giant, this giant uh, monstrosity of a god, which, by the way, that statue has two young children looking up adoringly at this, this monstrosity which was meant to evoke, by the way, the god of the Baals, Molech, who was known to cause his followers to pass their first child through the fire, which means to give their first living child into flames as in sacrifice of devotion to that god. This is the kind of twisted thing that the mind of man, darkened by rebellion, tries to make for himself thinking that he is securing freedom for himself, when all he is doing is increasing the wrath of God upon his own heart. Man cannot help but keep the idea of God around, even if it is just used as a means to exploit the aching conscience of others who are rejecting the knowledge of God, but who yet know in their hearts that to do so is sin. Man's eagerness to invent false gods is likely due in part to this design that God has made us to be worshipers. Remember, that is why we exist. How horribly offensive it is for us who are designed to worship the living God to then redefine our very purpose to worship things that are in direct opposition to God. And so what is God to do, seeing as His very creation? These people, these men and women that he has designed to bear his image and to worship him have rejected him and have attempted to redefine him into something more like the creation that he made. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up. This word is sometimes translated, God gave them over. The difference is not Significant. What we're seeing here is God allowing the rebellious heart of man to take him further and further into the depths of his own wickedness. Who does God give them over to? The scripture doesn't say that he turns them over to Satan here. It says that he gives them over to their own selves, to their own desires. The most common apologetic answer or question that I receive whenever I'm trying to show someone that there is a true God is this. If God is real, and if God is good, then why does He allow evil to exist? I'm sure you've probably encountered that question uh, from somebody at some point, whether it was just to troll you or to try to engage in deeper thought on God. I'll leave that up to you, but you've heard that question over and over again. If there is a God and if He is good, then why does He allow evil to exist? Well, the simple answer to that question is seen here in Romans chapter 1. God is rightly letting those who would rebel against him, taste of the destruction that they are attempting to bring upon themselves. When man says, no, God, I will not do what you made me to do. I will not worship you. The Lord God says, go ahead and feel what that's like. Go ahead and experience some of this wickedness that flows out of you, abandoning me and turning your back on what is good and true. God allows us to feel the sting of our sin. And considering the darkness of man's heart, God has turned them over to impurity. The lust of the heart that is detached from the goodness of God wants what is wretched and wicked, what is twisted and dark. I don't need to spend too much time on on this aspect because we're going to get to it in more detail in just a few verses. So in the weeks to come, we'll talk more and more about how the impurity of man's heart manifests itself in, in in the way that man dishonors his body. One thing that I might note here is that he says that he turns them over to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So you see here that this sin mentality becomes shared from person to person, and our desire to rebel against God can then influence others to do similar things. Do we want God to lead us, or do we insist upon leading ourselves? Do we trust the wisdom of God, or will we settle for nothing less than our own corrupted versions of the truth there is a relinquishing here god allows man the freedom to delf, to self-destruct apart from him is christ not yet your savior friend are you here this morning having not yet given yourself to the lord god i pray that if that is the case then he will one day be your god perhaps even today but it is important it is vital for you to know that your unbelief in god your refusal to give him glory or thanksgiving for what he has done to give you life is not a position of neutrality. It is, not, it is not a middle ground where you're just not quite sure yet, so you're not God's enemy, but you're not his friend. When you refuse to give honor to the God that made you to give him honor, then that is outright rejection of God, as God is. And an outright rejection of the purpose for which God has made you to be a human being. You do not realize the benefit that you have been given, that you are surrounded by the evidence that God is and that He is great. To some degree, the laws of God are even imprinted on the hearts of every man, even sinful man. In Romans 2, verses 14 through 15, we talk about how even those who are not under the law sometimes feel compelled to do what is right because the law is somehow written upon their hearts, not in a saving way, but in such a way that we cannot deny what is obvious man is without excuse, there is a God. And that God has said, live this way in accordance to my command. If you have rejected that God, then you know deep down inside, intrinsically, that some of the sinful things that you do are wrong. You make an effort to hide them perhaps, at least to the people around you who perceive you who you perceive to be of decent moral character. You don't want the good people to know what you do. And so you're discreet about it. You keep it under wraps. You might even battle against it a little bit within yourself. There may be a desire on your part to reform some of these sins that you know are wretched. And yet you found that apart from faith in God, your desire to sin is far greater than your desire to reform. And so every new attempt is just futility. With enough time, you simply slip back into your sin. You find your satisfaction in it again. If that is you today, I charge you, consider what you are exchanging when you refuse to listen to the word of God. God has brought a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. God has not said, you're a sinner. You need to start following all the rules so that I might approve of you again Work hard and maybe you'll earn heaven from me. That is not the message of the gospel that I come to preach to you today. The message of the gospel is this, that yes, every human being has rejected the glory of God and fails to worship him as they should. And that does bring the wrath of God upon the heart of every man and woman. But because of God's mercy and grace, he has provided a savior so that dirty sinners like us might have an intrinsic change of mind that he might give us a new mind and a new heart that can worship him. This is given not as a reward for keeping some of the rules. It is given, despite our sinfulness, as a free gift of God to make us what we could not make ourselves. Consider what you forfeit by living your life as if God is not there or as if he doesn't care about what you do or do not do. That is an utter lie. You were made in his very image to worship him. He has a deep concern about how you live your life. So if you are one of those who has not yet called upon the name of Christ, let me assure you there is a different way. You don't have to continue in this futile path of trying to convince yourself that you've done enough or that your sin isn't that bad compared to the sins of others. God's word challenges you to reject that natural tendency to reject God. Confess your sin to him and plead for his mercy, and the Son of God can set you free, not by your work, but by his redeeming work. As Paul concludes this sad evaluation of the state of man's rebellion, notice that he cannot help but return to the fact that whether or not man chooses to worship God, God is worthy of worship and deserves to be praised and served. It says, In verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served who? The creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This creator, whether you worship him or not, is blessed forever. This is a reminder to us that God's glory is not the thing that's in jeopardy here. The souls of sinners are in jeopardy. But the glory of God will never be shaken, friends. The grandeur and the majesty of the Creator lasts forever. It does not hinge upon your voice singing out psalms to Him. It does not hinge on you giving the right prayers. God is glorious. So worship Him. But your lack of worship to Him does not diminish His glory. God will be glorified through our repentance if we are Christians, whereby His amazing grace will be on display as He redeems us and transforms us and washes us clean by His blood, or His glory will be displayed in our judgment and in our damnation, whereby His amazing righteousness says, I will not let sin persist forever. And He does away with those who rebel against Him. Paul even concludes the statement by declaring an amen. That's not out of place, Christian. As Paul is reflecting upon the forever glory of God, he cannot help but say amen to the statement that rings true. He is caught up with the awesome power of his God even as he warns his fellow Christians not to take it for granted or to treat it like a cheap truth that can be shaped and molded to suit our prejudices and our desires. God is not in danger of becoming less than he has always been. But each man who refuses to acknowledge Him as God, each man who rejects the Savior that God the Father has provided for man is in danger of becoming less than he was designed to be. Apart from Jesus, every human being will give up the ability to worship and serve the true God and that is the fundamental purpose that we exist. We have been shown this morning, the brutal exchange that man makes when he rejects the living God. But there is more to this story. According to the plan of redemption, God has forged this alternative route, an escape path for those whom he is setting aside for himself. And so to end today, I want to read to you from 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 10. We have now seen how every man and woman universally exchanges the truth for the lie and gets something wretched in exchange for something that was beautiful and holy and good. But look at the hope that is displayed in this letter to the Thessalonian church. Starting in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you, people in Thessalonica, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your works of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And then down to verse 8, it says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves, meaning the, the people in different parts of the world, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you... Turned to God from idols to serving the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Praise be to God that our rejection of God doesn't have to be final. That it is not, that's it, I am done with you. But that God, through His great mercy and love, has made a way for us to make an exchange back to grace, back to truth, Back to holiness, and that exchange happens through Christ. When Christ took the sins of the world upon his shoulders and marched up the hill to Calvary, he bought for himself a people who were formally rejecting of the Lord God, who were formally deserving of wrath, and he purchased them by his own sacrifice and paid the penalty for their sin by suffering in their place so that they might exchange their wretched wrath. Their guilt before God, they might exchange it for the white, snow driven robes of Jesus Christ. Washed clean by his blood, those who trust in the Lord God have a righteousness that is not their own, but it is from God. Praise be to the one in heaven who has made a way for us to know him and to be near to him again. There is one way out of the wrath of God which has been revealed to us. Turn to God from idols, repent of the illusion and trust only in the God of truth. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for being the God of truth, a God that we can worship with free hearts, unhindered by worry and doubt and anxiety, knowing that you, God, are the true God, and that everything you have said about yourself in Scripture is coming true even now. Father, you are a keeper of your promises. You do not make empty proclamations of what you will do that never gets done. Father, everything that you have said is coming to pass or has come to pass. And we thank you, therefore, for the bringing of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all these prophecies of a Messiah, one who would come and regain the throne of Israel and would make a people who would reign forever over the creation that you have given man dominion over. We praise you, Lord God, that in faith in Christ, we can stand unashamed, that though we have been humbled to see the glory of God that now we can come boldly before the throne of God because we know that this work has been so perfectly completed that every last trace of our sin is done and accounted for. Thank you for making us new, Lord God. Continue to refine the people of this world in such a way that you bring more sheep into this fold, that you might be a good shepherd to them, that you might lead them to pastures of green and beside still waters, that we might feast at a table together in the presence of our enemies, knowing that you have secured for us a place in your eternal family. And we pray this all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.